HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and 3, we find out how Brexit could be changing the way that Brits eat. If you're not getting your food from the European Union, where Britain gets 30% directly, well, where are you going to get it from? As I put very succinctly, bye-bye fresh peaches from Italy, hello tinned peaches from Florida. Bye-bye fresh oranges, hello tinned oranges. Bye-bye free-range beef, Hello, hormone-injected beef. Tune in to hear about the UK's struggle to stabilize its food system on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. After a decade of working to foster sustainable farming practices, ethical trade, and community development in Africa, Jeff Abella and his partner Ishan founded Mocha Farms in Cameroon, and thusly Mocha Origins, a bean-to-bar-slash-bag coffee and chocolate company that inspires quote-unquote real social change. Jeff is here to explain, well, first and foremost, what bean-to-bar even means, what a craft chocolate bar consists of and why it costs $5, $7, or $10 at the store, and the challenges and unique rewards of building mocha farms up in Cameroon. Um, welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, Coral. Thanks so much. So it's let's a start, to be here. Yeah, let's start there. Um, what does exactly, what does it mean to be bean to bar? Um, yeah, what does it require? So when you think about chocolate, there's kind of two worlds. Um, there's the chocolate maker and the chocolatier. And so we're both. We're making chocolate starting from the raw cocoa bean or the cacao bean. And we do the whole process from sorting the beans, roasting them, deshelling them, grinding them into liquid chocolate, and then even aging them. And from that point, going on to the chocolate tearing stage of pouring them into chocolate. And so bean to bar chocolate refers to that entire kind of supply chain life cycle of a chocolate bar. Mm-hmm. And so when I go to the grocery store and I go to get treat myself to like a nice bar of chocolate and they range from like three dollars a bar to ten dollars a bar why am i choosing um what am i paying for with that ten dollars so a lot of that can do with the process and which it was made how the bar was made but a lot of it also has to do with the ingredients and the kind of social responsibility and practices around sourcing those ingredients 
And so when you look at prices and packaging as well, one of the things I look at is, you know, is it bean to bar chocolate? Is one company doing the entire process and therefore kind of nitpicking and being very specific on who they're sourcing the beans from and the practices and ingredients they're uh, they're, you know, using to make their chocolate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so why don't we take one of these $10 bars um, and kind of work backwards on price? What are you paying for? Um, are you paying for pretty packaging? Are you paying for the roasters here in America who are wrapping them? Like, what What are you sure. paying for? So recently, the Washington Post put out a really good article, and um, if you've ever eaten chocolate or plan to, you should read this article. We kind of owe it to the world. And they did a great job um, really surfacing the realities around a lot of eth- uh, unethical farming practices and pinpointed a few countries in Africa and really focused in on child slave labor. And it was kind of a, a shock to many to see that the companies the Washington Post was calling out um, you know, were those supplying the majority of the chocolate that, that the world consumes. And you know, when we see a cheap chocolate bar or something between like one and two or three dollars, um, it you know it just doesn't add up, and it feels like great value because it it really is. Um, but that bean was potentially grown on the backs of child slave labor, and those are um, issues that I'm glad are now surfacing and people are becoming more aware of. And so one thing that we work hard on in Cameroon is focusing on quality, and we'll talk a bit more about this, but. Um, not so much bulk, high quantity, and more on low quantity, higher quality, and paying premiums for that quality. At the same time, compensation that's fair and really equals what the farmer deserves. And so all of that ultimately is going to cost more. And so when we use beans that have that value and that ethical um, you know, tie back to how they were, um, uh, how the, the transparent trade um, happened, it it uh, should, you know, taste better, should be a better quality product. At the same time, we can feel good about eating it. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've been kind of angling the conversation towards chocolate more, but let's also apply the same questions to coffee. Um, let's say I don't really understand what coffee should taste like. I go to the store, um, everything's like around $14 for the 14-ounce bag, and it all kind of tastes the same. So why am I going to, you know, I'm going to pick for the bag that's very pretty with the gold foiling and the blue, you know, which one I'm talking about. And why am I reaching for that one? Right. Well, if you're reaching for that, it's probably, you know, been branded and it's um, like in our consumer DNA at this point. We've been trained as consumers to, you know, look for that red, um, maybe it's that red plastic bucket of coffee that's been ground for a year at that point. Um, Or it could be, um, you know, it could, when when you look at pricing though, on the coffee market, um, there's commodity grade and there's specialty grade. So let's start with the beans, and it really does all start there. And there's the there's the way that the farmer was paid. You know the compensation that occurred. Um, what was that as far as uh, fairness to uh, to the farmer? Um, but then there's quality, and so there's you know low quality and, and high quality and everywhere in between. And and the Specialty Coffee Association of America, the SCAA, does a really good job of creating a standard for grading coffee, and that ultimately that that should set the price as well. And so when you see bulk coffee on the shelf um, or you see coffee in the supermarket that's you know priced really uh, economically, um, you can probably you know guess that it's not specialty or premium grade. 
Um, and the defects you often don't taste because the roast levels are so dark. Um, and so mm. one thing that re we really have fun with at, at Mocha is sourcing specialty grade coffee, um, oftentimes from the farmers themselves. And, um, and then working with the bean to not muddy the flavor and completely um, you know, uh, lose that unique quality that's in that coffee's uh, that in that coffee's flavor potential, but really kind of draw it out. So lighter roast, more medium roast, and mm -hmm. that's often what you uh, you get when you pay more for a coffee. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about this on the show. Um, why pay eight dollars, nine dollars for eggs at the farmers market when they're like fifty cents at the grocery store? And what people don't see or um, rem are reminded of is that a lot of it is subsidized by the government and is there is there that kind of subsidy on coffee and chocolate as well uh yes and no i mean the it all really starts with the consumer's demand and so when i think about like that washington post article and the issues that uh, we see a lot of west african farmers facing um there's a demand for that there's a demand for high you know large quantities of low quality beans that don't have traceability and um, and we consume a ton of that. And so I think it really all starts with us. So, um, you know, we're almost subsidizing that by insisting that chocolate is a candy and it should be priced really low. I, I love to see mm -hmm. chocolate just completely, you know, disappear from that shelf. If you can't afford it, we shouldn't eat it um, because there's, there's a huge downside to doing it. At the same time, there's a lot of money to be made in bulk, um, you know, bulk commodity cocoa and coffee beans. So... Um, on the on the farm side, it's it's just kind of keeps the demand high for that kind of low price um, bulk commodity grade, and so I think it has a lot to do with kind of us waking up as consumers. We just um, released a, a line of bars, and it's it's four different countries from from Africa. Um, we'll actually we're going to feature them at our at our pop up on the Upper West Side next uh, this weekend this Friday, and our whole point is to kind of show consumers that um, you know these are expensive beans for us to sort. Uh, source and the chocolate is very unique and when you take time to kind of realize that uh, chocolate is more of a food than a candy um, you start to kind of relate to the price of an eight to sixteen dollar chocolate bar mm -hmm. yeah I, we were talking about this before the show but um coffee and i think even chocolate too like you associate certain feelings or memories with it and you expect maybe consistency above all things and so what is the argument then for trying, you know, this single origin chocolate when I just want something cozy? Yeah, I, the, you know, anything you can want is out there. And so, you know, even for that, that chocolate, maybe you don't want something super nuanced or fruity or floral, which a lot of uh, uh, cocoa or cacao has that to offer. Um, you can get other chocolates that, you know, are a little bit more toned down and just give you that really nice chocolatey kind of those roasty toasty notes. And, and same with coffee as well. But when you kind of look beyond the, the packaging and get to know a company, I think a few things that we're looking for are just what are the sourcing practices that they've committed to and what steps are they making to showcase transparency. And, uh, and, and those are really good kind of buying decisions as far as consumers. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like being good to the earth and being good to our tummies and our tastes feels mutually exclusive sometimes. And so... Um, if all we want from chocolate is something sweet and chocolatey tasting, um, why why should brands do the hard work of sourcing better, you know, from better people, treating them better, um, and making that clear to the consumer? Because it's our responsibility. 
Um, and it's it's something that we, we absolutely have to do. Without the farmer, there's no tree, and without the tree, there's no pot or, or chocolate really to be had. But beyond that, it's just a you know a question of ethics. And cocoa and coffee are growing so far outside of our view in this consuming you know world here, and at least in in the U.S. And it's um, I think really the job of us as the chocolate maker um, to make it clear what is that story of chocolate. It's mm -hmm. It's, there's something behind this bar that makes it, um, you know, it really links back to people's lives and livelihood, livelihood of thousands. And so um, the consumer education piece for us at Mocha is really fun. Uh, we try to spend a lot of time to not just showcase like the flavor potential of a bar, but all the way back to the farmers that grow the beans and what that relationship looks like on the farm. Mm -hmm. And so you've been doing this for a while. Um, before Mocha, you were in Cameroon. You were working in Africa anyway. And so as someone who's been kind of an observer for the past decade or so, what do you think has led to these changing expectations or demands of our food? I think that one kind of primary um, influencer is um, maybe even social media um, and just like the connectedness we are to the world. Um, you can now see much more than you, you could before. And we're, you know, easy to get reports from, you know, 5,000 miles away on the conditions of living and, um, and how certain farming practices that, you know, ultimately equal a food we're eating are not sustainable or healthy for those, you know, breaking their backs to make that for us. And so... Um, I, I, I like to kind of look at the media and, and social media as in, in the positive light as far as letting us have insight into these practices that um, forever we hadn't been able to see. When I first started working in, in Cameroon, it was in 2007, and like smartphone technology was hardly there. There was no Wi-Fi. I, I backpacked over, over a dial-up modem and I had a little Nokia phone. And um, But by 2009 and 10, we were able to actually have um, you know, data plans and start sharing. So we started with our farming networks that we were creating, sharing um, mobile phones and having apps installed that let them track the um, the metrics that they were um, using to calculate the profitability of their farm, how much they harvested, what was the uh, uh, amount paid to them. And then our, our health programs were even using them to track the patient cases and things like that. Mm -hmm. But um, technology really kind of blew the door open as far as potential uh, for the farmer as well as for them to communicate to us in the consumer consuming world what uh, what's happening. Mm -hmm. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick. 
with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. Jeff and I were just talking about how mocha got kind of set up in Cameroon. So let's start there. You weren't doing chocolate and coffee your whole life. Um, So let's start at the very beginning. What happened? Yeah, it really had nothing to do with coffee or chocolate in the beginning. And, um, And even today, the mission of it doesn't. But Ultimately, the success has all to do uh, with the chocolate and coffee part of the company. Uh, We were living in Cameroon, West Africa, and my wife and I had moved there in 2007 to start a a network of libraries and health centers for a really great not-for-profit. And we're situated in this mountainous region, about 6,000 feet up in the northwest region of the country. And all of the people that we were working with and ultimately turned into our, our neighbors and, 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 and family um, are coffee farmers. This community is, um, was at one point like kind of built around uh, high-end coffee production. And the coffee market is very volatile, a lot of ups and downs. Um, and so it, it always became, it, it very quickly became an unstable kind of uh, crop to grow. And as we were serving more with our libraries and our health centers, and then we started doing mobile health clinics, we started reaching coca-growing communities as well, and really just got fascinating with, fascinated by the uh, potential that these two crops have, so much influence in the community. At the same time, there's so much inconsistency and vulnerability. And we started a small community farming project in 2015. We called it Mocha. Uh, Mocha, you know, Mocha Latte means, you know, the the coffee and chocolate coming together, two things we all all love. And it was an agricultural project to showcase cocoa and coffee production in a sustainable way. And, you know, I always joke, you have to be kind of crazy to start a a cocoa farm um, if it's like, you know, you chasing a profitable dream. And, and so that's just what we did. We started growing cacao there to really jump in and understand the problem even more. Uh, we started it around a farmer field school that is open to the other cocoa farmers in the area to come in and um, see what practices we're using and um, equally learn a ton from everyone else that's there. And so, um, you know, it's, it's me and a local community of, of, of Cameroonian agronomists and agri- agricultural technicians and just cocoa farmers um, working through best practices to kind of figure out what pinch points along their cocoa uh, supply chain um, we can work to improve for them. And yeah, and you know, I want to add one thing is the, the cocoa quality there, it's really good, but the world doesn't know it for quality and mm. it, it's a bulk commodity. And so when we look at, you know, when we look at pricing, um, the when, when I, I joked about being crazy to start a cocoa farm there, um, it's because there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of awareness around fine flavored cocoa, and people are not farmers are not getting paid a high price for premium cocoa. Um, the training and the knowledge actually isn't even in this community to grow that. It's let's focus in on um, quantity. And when the time of year comes, when the buyers come in, let's liquidate whatever pods we have on our tree and earn very little for our, our hard work. And so what we've slowly started to do is, is teach 
quality cocoa production. And we've done it ourselves the hard way to showcase that, all the way from harvesting and fermentation and drying, and even then what kind of varieties we're planting, what kind of uh, uh, crop you know varietals are we using. And then crop diversification, so growing um, bananas and plantain, mangoes, papayas, avocados, other things to kind of help farmers diversify their risk a little bit. And mm-hmm. from on the ecosystem of it all, there's a lot of... Um, that intercropping model is very advantageous. You have banana trees growing, um, you know, within a year we can harvest the banana. That banana tree is then shading a cocoa tree that won't be ready to produce anything of value till about four to five years. So there's a nice relationship between those two crops mm-hmm. at the same time teaching how to grow even more valuable uh, tree crops. Yeah. So even before you were involved, um, those farmers were already growing cacao? Correct. Okay. And so, I mean, hard questions, but... How do you then navigate coming in with like almost a savior complex, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I never thought of it that way because um, we were literally living there and part of this community. Um, and it was uh, me and my friend Edwin that started this farm. Uh, Edwin's a Cameroonian, and it was so it was never really a foreign entity coming in. Um, it's actually a local Cameroonian-based uh, company. Um, Just a few of us that started very small on this farm. Um, The local um, government granted the land for it and the the neighboring communities were really supportive of it. So I think the the whole idea was and still isn't to showcase um, what others should be doing. It's working with them to trial other kind of practices that the more developed cocoa growing communities around Mm -hmm. the world are doing successfully. Mm -hmm. And asking a farmer to do that blindly is is crazy you know and we would never do that but trying it ourselves um, has been a really great way to showcase what works and also what doesn't and then collaboratively with the community members identify potential solutions mm-hmm. so was it that the farmers there would kind of think like we really want to do this with our cacao but we just don't have the resources we don't have um you know, just a lot of the general setup to do that? Or is it like, we don't even know where to begin? Um, It's both. Plus it's, we really want to sell our cocoa for more money. Uh And it's just not worth more money until you put in some, um, some different techniques and practices. So like um, the fermentation is a great example. Uh, A cocoa pod grows on a tree. and, And when it's first harvested, the fermentation step is really critical to getting it to the point of being a good quality bean, which will make good quality chocolate. And when that practice isn't taught, it's really hard. Or, or actually, when, when someone's not paying against that um, better quality uh, fermentation. Mm-hmm. Which also takes extra time. It takes extra right. time, effort, and knowledge. Um, then what's the point of even doing it? Mm-hmm. And when the majority of a country is selling to maybe two or three of the huge chocolate companies in the world that are making chocolate from commodity beans and such a low percentage of their chocolate is actually cocoa, Hmm. you're not going to taste the defective bean, so it doesn't matter. Um, And farmers can sell it quickly. They sell it very very cheaply, however. So what we've started to do was work with farmers to say, you know, let's keep doing that, but let's take, you know, maybe one acre or, you know, it might be one ton and do a better job fermenting, Hmm. a better job drying, and double picking and really keeping that lot of cocoa separate. And so we started then making chocolate collaboratively together over there in these small grinders that we brought over and together can taste the difference. And when we see that the quality is better, 
we pay against quality. So there's never, it's not a donation or a handout. It's really showcasing that uh, quality deserves a higher price. And when you achieve that, you can be paid for that. And so we're trying to, um, yeah, really work in that direction where it's, um, you're getting paid for the extra value that you're adding. Mm-hmm. And so how much of their chocolate is divided between the commodity bulk crop versus, you know, the more premium time intensive kind? Yeah. In, in Cameroon, it's huge. It's in the, you know ninety percent or more is just commodity grade. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's slowly growing, but yeah. still ten percent. Yeah. Or so. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of work to do, right. and, and 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 a lot of the world does too. Mm-hmm. And what I thought, have, you know, it's been really fun the last decade seeing the craft chocolate industry pop up in America. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're actually as a whole working together to kind of push shelf space, steal some market share from these big bulk chocolate companies, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, and it all starts with us as consumers, though, understanding what that what that even means. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I, I, I think the, um, you know, my opportunities like this to tell that story, to really share about um, what it means to make quality chocolate all the way and, and, and link that back to the farming practices. It really has to start with the education. Mm-hmm. It's almost like that 90-10 split is like a direct reflection of what the market wants yeah Yeah. um so let's talk about um this like you select one acre and you are putting more time into it you're putting more care and so you did this taste test and like what describes some of these taste differences and how we might be able to pick them out like when i when we try like a 50 cent piece of chocolate well so you'll taste in a 50 cent or a dollar bar um you're just gonna taste a lot of sugar, and it's really fun to do this. So get a, a nice, good quality dark chocolate bar from a, a company. Local oranges. You can do mocha. <laughs> There's so many great craft chocolate makers now. Uh, we'd be honored if you tried ours, but try ours up against one of those bars. When you taste the that dollar bar, it's gonna taste like it's gonna taste like sugar, and so. Um, but as far as the bean quality goes, you know we've been doing tests with beans for yeah six seven years and. Um, we have made a lot of really bad chocolate in the early stages, testing beans to see, well, what does poor fermentation really taste like? Or poor drying methods. You know, uh, I, I recently brought back a, a lot. It was a sample that was given to us, and it had been dried using wood-fired ovens, so smoke had contaminated the, hmm. the cocoa beans. And, um, yeah, the chocolate tasted like smoked, uh, it almost tasted like bacon or something. And, uh, uh, you know, but you'll, you can taste the defective beans when it's at a high percentage of, uh, of cocoa. So a 70%, 80% dark par- bar made with poor beans, you're going to really um, identify that. But if it's made with, you know, 11 or 18%, whatever that legal minimum is now in the, in, in the U.S., um, it's, it's not really going to be detectable. Mm-hmm. And so... A good bar tastes like? Oh, gosh. Uh, there's so much. The range is incredible. So you can have fruit notes. Uh, the bar we have in front of us, the uh, the cocoa is from Tanzania, a really beautiful growing co-op called uh, Coco Camille. And their beans has like a they have like a cherry tone to them. Uh, we don't add any uh, cherry flavoring to that chocolate. The base itself has that unique fruit-like characteristic because mm-hmm. ultimately it is a fruit. Um, our, our beans that we're really proud of bringing back from Cameroon, um, the farmer and, and dear friend Stanley and I worked hard to ferment them to get them just to be almost like that classic chocolatey taste. It almost tastes like, um, um, like slightly malted cherry, a little nutty note, 
um, just really brilliant flavors. The beans that we source from uh, Sierra Leone, they taste like nougat, um, almost baked brownie. Mm. Uh, so you have a ton of different um, different flavor potentials in, in, in cocoa. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think it was last year you released um, not only a Cameroon chocolate, but a Cameroon coffee. And so what are some of the, why? first of all, why is it a big deal that there's Cameroon chocolate and Cameroon coffee out there? Great. It's a big deal because there's thousands of growers growing these beans and they're doing a really great job. And I love it when I see their beans in the market. Um, they're there's a big disadvantage though, uh, West Africa in general, but Cameroon even more specifically isn't known for, um, for coffee. It's just a small country in the growing region. It's very high elevation and very good, but it's very small. So from a percentage standpoint, Cameroon coffee is a low volume in the, in the, in the coffee market. And so we made it a point to introduce that bean as well as our, our chocolate bar made of Cameroonian cocoa. Um, and just really love the farmers that we're working with and the, the flavor of that, of that crop. And um, one other point is the, the status of it. Neither of those are organic certified. And, um, and, I, and I love just sharing the story around the organic practices that the farmers are, are going through, mm-hmm. um, working really hard to, to achieve organic grade uh, co- uh, cocoa and coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get asked about price often and that certification. And so, you know, there's a whole other side to uncertified um, coffee and uncertified organic cocoa. Um, certifications are really important. We see them on the packages. They immediately tell us the story, you know, oh, it was grown organically and it was traded fairly. And that's really important. The principles of those certifications are really important. The downside to some of that is they leave farmers who are going through those organic and fair trade methods, but can't afford those certifications um, with much less of mar- much, much less of a market for their crops. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, buy coffee from 3,700 farmers in Cameroon, um, and they're not organic certified, even though they're growing really great organic coffee. Um, there's a few coffee estates in Cameroon who could afford that that certification and it's one person owning that entire plantation hmm. um, so the wealth distribution is much less they got the or, the certification and now the market responds well to that coffee meanwhile there's a large number of uh, farmers who are at a disadvantage without that certification mm-hmm. going back to what we were talking about earlier like this example with the organic but not able to accept or afford the label of organic feels like a good example of stepping in, lifting others up, but not stepping all over what's going on. And so to other chocolate and coffee producers, what are some kind of like guiding principles or maybe practices that you turn back to when, you know, kind of reconciling Mocha's growth with just sustainable practices on their farms? Yeah. Um, Where you source your ingredients, Um, you should disclose it and you should work with, you know, um, importers that are getting beans directly from the producers and can really showcase that transparency. Um, going to origin is expensive and it's hard. Um, buying directly is challenging as well. Starting your own farm is like the ultimate, um, uh, you know, crazy example. But um, there's ways to express ethics and transparency by doing your job and sourcing from really good um, suppliers of of cocoa and coffee beans here and when um, you know I think the the last kind of point to that is when you do that 
you'll be able to um, you know start to really tell a story and and showcase that um, this isn't just a, a product this is a, a story this is a a, a really important part of a grower's life and this is the the end uh, point of that mm-hmm. um, but it's really important to um, yeah to make sure we take those steps and, and and do that and I think when I think of the the price of coffee and chocolate it's not going to help your price you know buying bulk um, you know commodity grade beans is much more affordable and it's how you can get profitable as a coffee or chocolate company um, and if that's ultimately your your goal, then um, you know that's where uh, a lot of the commodity market chocolate and coffee are headed. Um, you know, we made it a point that that wasn't our intention. It's not even why we're in existence as a company, and we kind of took the hard way. And I really think that it's great that you know other craft chocolate makers and coffee roasters are doing that as well, mm-hmm. putting that first. Yeah. So last year, um, FedEx kind of recognized the hard work you're doing and uplifted you by awarding you a grant. And so um, can you give us an example in this past year where you were now faced with this opportunity for huge growth, but also how do you scale just sustainable practices from, you know, your small coffee roaster that you once had to something insane? Sure. Well, we started our business with some very um, tight, tightly defined core values and I think um, just sticking to those is going to let us stay in line, uh, align our growth um, with those um, original intentions. And so a lot of them are revolving around our sourcing practices, sourcing from um, either producers directly or from um, producer groups that work with, with farmers directly and make sh- making sure we can see that transparent trade happening. Um, the other is on our own farm in Cameroon, um, sticking with our commitment to um, continue to plant thousands of trees every year, creating employment while we do that, and linking that to our, uh, our, our consumers' um, orders. So we have this, um, we have this, this fun uh, um, policy that every, every order plants a tree. And Partially, it's because the revenue allows us to do that, um, but it's also just a way to link the consumer's order and their awareness to that, oh, wow, my chocolate is made from a bean that grew onto a tree from a farmer's really hard work over the course of five to ten years. It's um, an educational piece that really plugs them in directly. The third thing is to take people to origin with us. And so as we spend you know, almost half of our time overseas um, at our partnering farms, um, we love the opportunity for everyone to come and join us. And you could be a, a chocolate lover, a coffee lover, or just want to um, have an opportunity to explore off the beaten path places where the practices that we're putting in play in context of chocolate and coffee um, mean the world of a difference to people 5,000 miles away. So our Origin Trip series launched last year and uh, allows people to travel with us to kind of see our, our work in action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on the website, I'm um, seeing that your purchase goes to the planting of tree feels like a very direct equivalency for the consumer. And so um, as we close, like let's say our listeners are going to the grocery store and they're so motivated to support a craft coffee or chocolate um, purveyor, um, when they are scanning the different varieties, what should they be considering? Um, what should they have faith that those their dollars are going towards? So look for, um, you know, small batch. Look for bean to bar. Um, dig a little bit deeper and see if the maker can tell you what uh, 
you know, where they came from, uh, not just the country, but the, um, the region, not just the region, but maybe the producer group, or in some cases, even the farmer. Um, yeah, look for signs of traceability. And, um, and then even the varieties of coffee and cocoa. Uh, these are fruits that are, you know, growing. So you can really like get closely connected with um, the agricultural side of coffee and, and chocolate as well. So just these, indica- these things are indicators that um, there's a lot more to this product than just a, um, you know, just a, a price auction at a commodity level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I actually, um, I'm, I might be a cynic, but when I see those farmer profiles, part of me is like, what am I supposed to do with that information? Like, I, I appreciate the brand's traceability and their values are there, their heart is there, and they're using the right things to prop them up, but how is the consumer to use that information? I think they can use it to just acknowledge that the people in that supply chain, so the chocolate maker or the coffee roaster, is trying their best to showcase transparency. Um, Yeah, I don't think it's a perfect solution either, nor do I the certifications that we see on all of our packages don't necessarily have the answer either. But I think that their principles kind of underlining those attempts that are working in the right direction. Thank you for joining me today, Jeff. Thank you so much, Coral. Huge pleasure. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.